Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 91. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Lauren Scribe Harris. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned into the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we blast off, propelled through the atmospheric layer of plot, past the Lagrange points of character, and straight into the starry wilds of space <laughs> in search of literary, literary gold. <laughs> Lagrange points. That may be the first time in Roundtable history that anybody has invoked Lagrange points in their opening riff for this workshop episode format. Lauren, you continue to. That's fabulous. What can I say? I was a rabid Gundam Wing fangirl. (laughs) You continue to rock our world, sis. Well done. Well done. Yes, indeed. This is the Roundtable podcast. This is Dave Robison and Lauren Scribe Harris coming to you from the Potosphere, where we are about to launch into an epic, epic brainstorm of of clearly, given that intro, cosmic proportions, or at least galactic ones. Uh, uh, Lauren, thank you so much for coming back. The 20 minutes, fabulous, as always. The brainstorm, I, I can only imagine the fabulosity to come. Thanks for thanks for coming back, sis. Hey, not a problem, ever. <laughs> you know how much I love to brainstorm things. <laughs> That's right, you do, and you do it so well. And and once you have your stenciled virtual chair, uh, uh, there's going to be no reason for you not to come back. So I mean, yeah, really, you're, you're getting me a chair. So. That's right. There may even be be coffee involved who knows <laughs> you know what i like <laughs> <laughs> i do i absolutely do. and i know what our listeners like our listeners like to hear our guest hosts talking so let's not keep them waiting any longer let's welcome back to the big chair fresh from a fabulous 20 minutes with of just seven days ago please welcome back to that same big chair Marguerite Reed. Marguerite, uh, uh, the 20 minutes was a delight and, and a wonderful exploration, both of your craft and and the genre of speculative fiction in general, which was awesome. I'm, I'm deeply, deeply excited about the prospect of brainstorming a story with you, ma'am. Thanks so much for coming back. Oh, thank you. This big chair is getting pretty comfy. I'm telling you, we're Cadillac here in the Roundtable Virtual <laughs> Studios, baby. That, that's how we roll. So, Marguerite, Archangel just came out last May, and that still continued to generating buzz and interest across the speculative fiction community. Uh, uh, you, you've launched a Patreon feed, I know that, and you have dozens of stories just clamoring at the back of your brain going, tell me now, tell me now. So, so what's coming up in the world of Marguerite Reed? Well... Those stories got to be so clamorous that after some lengthy talk with my spouse and setting up the Patreon, uh, I quit my job. So that I know, so that I could <laughs> devote all my free time to writing, you know, as, in addition to taking care of the kids and the house and the dog and the spouse. Um, but life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, life. So, so that's what I'm doing. That's why the Patreon account was set up so that I can pay some bills while I'm creating so if you go on patreon and look me up there i am there's a wide variety of donations that you can put forward with different rewards so don't feel that it has to be a big deal like 10 25 bucks we're talking one dollar three dollars the beauty of patreon yes absolutely very cool um i'm also working on the sequel to archangel which is called legion and that is going to be very sciencey and very actiony. Cool, cool. Of course, so was Archangel for that matter. So, so the action, the action continues. Is it escalating? Is are things getting bigger? Bigger? Well, different. Okay. Uh, less dinosaurs and more pew pew. <laughs> or fewer fewer dinosaurs i should say and, and moving moving gracefully from one sci-fi trope to another we've gone from dinosaurs to pew pew awesome <laughs> awesome very cool any idea when legion might hit the bookshelves where where are you at in that process i'm being told by my publisher resurrection house that it is going to be out next fall excellence as well yes so roughly one year 
<laughs> Very cool. Excellent. And now, in the meantime, I hope more and more people will pick up a copy of Archangel and discover that world. Oh, my goodness, yes. And and friends do. Uh, uh, all of the praise that that book has earned is well-deserved. Uh, uh, so make that scene. Now, I'm, I'm curious. Obviously, Marguerite, from our 20 Minutes With Conversations, you do are you are a con-goer. Uh, yes. uh, what, co- what cons are on your upcoming schedule? Well, Lord Willen and the Crick Don't Rise. Of course, we're looking at WISCON. Right. Uh, we're looking at ArmadilloCon which I attended for the first time last year, and it was a blast. Uh, And, of course, the World Science Fiction Con, which is going to be right in my backyard. Right, Kansas Kansas City, yeah. So looking forward to that. Very cool. Well, well, then, then we will get to shake hands at this year's World Con, because I will, I will definitely be there as well. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I will make sure that all of that goodness gets tucked gracefully into the liner notes for this particular episode. Uh, uh, Lauren, what about you? It it hasn't been that dreadfully long since you've graced the co-host chair. Uh, What are the developments in in your various projects? Well, um, I'm still trekking away on the same book I was trekking away on when we were chatting with Gail Carriger. So uh, I've got like a week or two left before my deadline hits for that. So as you can imagine, I've been spending a lot of time on that. And what was Um, that story again for those friends that that may, for whatever bizarre reason, missed your conversation with Gail Carriger? What was that story about? Well, I'm tempted not to tell them if they missed my conversation (laughs) with Gail Carriger. Yes, uh, (laughs) It's it's called Hellhound. It's a a young adult contemporary fantasy story. Hmm, And um, I had hoped to finish it before I attend the convention, uh, Y'all Fest, with Gail in mid-November. So we'll see if that happens. But uh, the only other thing that has of note is that I have finished recording the raw narration for Starla Hutchton's flipped fairy tale Shadows on Snow, and it is now in uh, in production with Brian Lincoln. Yes, and hopefully will be available before too long for purchase on uh, Audible.com. Outstanding. Well, and, and friends, you, you've heard Lauren's dulcet tones uh, here on the round table. She's a superb <laughs> vocal performer, I can tell you from experience. And Starla Hutchton is a superb storyteller. Getting these two together into one package is thermonuclear awesomeness in in an in a, in a, in a, in a MP3 file. So, so when that goes live, and you can bet I'll be crowing about that as well and boosting the signal, uh, uh, friends, definitely check that out. It's totally worth it worth your time. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I will make sure that news gets into the liner notes as well, Lauren. Uh, uh, but here's what I'd like to do now. I'd like to take a, a brief pause at this point and, and share some some podcast airtime with another fabulous podcast or a promo for a Kickstarter or an ebook, some other awesomeness that's happening out there in the Podosphere because it's always happening out there in the Podosphere. And when we come back, Marguerite, Lauren, yeah. I would love to brainstorm a story with you. What do you say? Sounds Sounds awesome, Dave. Yes! I couldn't agree more. Awesome is what our goal is. It will be achieved. Friends, don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. A Nazi's dying note names a Chicago filmmaker. A disabled girl goes missing in the San Francisco underworld. A serial killer stalks the Idaho lake country. Mysterious deaths terrorize a Montreal hospital. A ghostly murder threatens New Mexico's upper crust. A wayward will and a summer of strife bring murder to Memphis. A tech mogul finds a shadow world of depravity and murder beneath the streets of New York. A cross-country chase to find a mob treasure threatens the witness's family. A billionaire eager to clear his name cracks open Chicago's deepest perversions. And one of the most famous hard-boiled detectives of all time shares his most baffling adventures. This is Dark Justice, a dark mystery bundle by the best voices of the 20th century and the most promising talents of the 21st. Ten books, ten adventures, ten puzzles to twist you in knots by ten voices that will haunt you long after the last page turns. Set your own price and get Dark Justice now at storybundle.com slash crime. Offer ends November 19th. 
Welcome back, dear friends. And now we get down to the reason why you're here and the reason why we're here. The story brainstorm. And that does not happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding forward and setting the table for our brainstorming feast. And dear friends, Greek mythology was our guest writer's gateway drug into the whole fantasy scene, his love of ancient myths leading him to reading such literary delights as the Lioness Quartet, which included his first sex scene at the age of 10, and then on through the Song of Ice and Fire when he was 15. Never content to merely observe, his love of reading became a passion for writing. He dove into the NaNoWriMo arena five years ago, and except for one, has achieved 50,000 word glory every single time. He's studying anthropology, creative writing, and French at Linfield College in Oregon, where he has also served as editor-in-chief for its literary journal for a year and is currently spending his junior year abroad in Aison-Provence, France, and traveling a bit through Europe during breaks. Yes, the dude is living the life. And friends, I gotta add this little tidbit. He was one of the first people that I didn't know who followed the Roundtable podcast on Twitter, which was an incredible rush for me. And it's what's intriguing is he was a fan from the very beginning, but at the time he was too young to be on the show. He couldn't submit to be a guest writer, but now that is no longer the case. So friends, please join me in welcoming to the writer's chair here at the Roundtable, Hiberto Galvez. Hiberto, it, is, it has been a, a distant distant orbiting of, of tweets and, and Facebook posts for several years. Dude, I am so grateful that we got the chance to have you on the show and participate as a guest writer, man. I so appreciate it. I am so excited to finally be on. I know, right? After listening for three years, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a part of the team now. Dude, so, so you just came back from a little side journey in Spain, didn't you? Well, I actually ended up going to more places in France instead of Spain. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I got lost in Avignon for a day. Oh, that sounds <laughs> fabulous. Yeah, that sounds like a story by itself, lost oh, in Avignon oh, for yeah. a day. Oh, my God, yeah, perfect title and a perfect setup. That's brilliant. Well, look, Hiberto, let's, let's dive into this because I'm eager to hear your story pitch and to start brainstorming. So you know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. Give us the title, the intended audience. Give us a tagline. Uh, uh, give us any themes that you're looking to explore in here. Introduce us to the world and the characters. Give us the basic story tent poles of your, of your conception. And we will be off to the races. And that's, that's all I'm going to say. Dude, the mic is all yours. All right, here goes. The title of my novel is Into the Light. It is a dark fantasy with a slight steampunk feel intended for an adult audience. The hook line is, an inexperienced demon hunter races to rescue his mentor from a necromancer who has discovered a way to live forever at the price of the world. The theme I would like to explore is how the best intentions can lead to the gravest consequences. My novel is set to Normova, a land of demons and the undead, where humans must fight daily for survival. The societies are loosely based on Victorian England and other parts of the world during that era. The people of the Glory Kingdoms pray to the Thousand Glories for their protection at the hand of their agents, the Demon Hunters, who use holy spells and weapons to fight the creatures of darkness. They are steampunk-esque with pistols and other sorts of clockwork technology. The people of the provinces place their fates in the hands of the necromantic cabals, use the very weapons of the undead and demons to keep their people safe. And now for the characters. The protagonist of the story is Kenrick. He is a young demon hunter stationed at the eastern outpost on the border between the kingdoms and the provinces. It's his dream to be a renowned demon hunter, and he believes the best way to do that is to follow commands to the letter. But throughout the story, he learns that at times he must break rules to do the right thing. Throughout the novel, Kenrick is aided by fellow demon hunter, Esbern, a vampire named Carmillo, and Melina, a demon-marked girl. Esbern is a demon hunter who, who trained with Kenrick. He is selfish and self-serving, and only joined Kenrick to escape punishment for deserting fellow demon hunters. Carmillo is a vampire on the hunt for the necromancer that killed his sister. 
He joins Kenrick because he believes Kenrick will lead him to the killer. Along the way, a romance begins between the two of them. Melina is demon-marked, meaning that a demon has marked her as a host for its eventual entrance into the world. Her goal is to find a way to stop this. Currently, she believes the way to do that is to become a vampire and will not stop pestering Carmillo to turn her. The main antagonist of my novel is Antanas, the first necromancer, who always says you don't become a necromancer because you love death, but because it's the thing you fear the most in the world. It is his plan to release a powerful being known as Aro, the mother of light from a prison, to erase his death, and in the process, remake the world into a place safer for humans, but ultimately under his control. But the last time Aro was in the world, she almost destroyed it. Atanas has two important necromancers that serve him, Elena and Tabora. Elena is the younger of the two, but she is much more confident. She has a cruel streak with a penchant for creative curses. She was sent by Antanas to infiltrate the Eastern Outpost and bring him a demon hunter. Tabora leads a powerful but small cabal of necromancers. At heart, Tabora is unsure of Antanas's commands, but finds herself bowing down to her former teacher's wishes. Now for the story. The overarching event or arc that causes the story to move into motion is Antanas's wish to live forever. But to open Aro's prison, he needs a few ingredients. One of those ingredients is a live demon hunter. The story proper begins after Kenrick has just received the news from Esbern that Nerissa, Kenrick's mentor, has died fighting against a demon. Kenrick is distraught. He and a group of demon hunters set out to investigate the scene of the battle where they capture a necromancer. Her name is Elena. Elena is to be tried and executed by the demon hunters in the outpost, but she tells Kenrick that she knows Nerissa is still alive and where Tabora might be keeping her, telling him also that the demon belonged to Tabora. Kenrick tells this to his superiors, but they see Nerissa as a lost cause and refuse to help. So in the night, Kenrick rescues Elena and forces her to lead him to Tabora's home. He ends up also freeing Esbern, who has been in prison for deserting. On their travels through the provinces, they meet a vampire named Carmillo and a demon-marked girl named Melina. They get into some adventures that I haven't quite figured out yet. At any rate, they reach where Tabor is keeping Nerissa, only to discover that Nerissa is being kept barely alive by a very delicate necromantic spell. And once the spell ends, Nerissa will die. There is no way to save her. They also discover that Tabor's demon is still alive as well. After a hard-fought battle, Kenrick defeats the demon, and Elena kills Tabora in order to convince Kenrick that Elena is on his side. Kenrick discovers that Antanas wishes to acquire a powerful and unknown weapon hidden deep in the Glory Kingdoms. He takes it upon himself to find a way to stop Antanas, no matter the cost. He ventures back into the kingdoms, where Antanas has already found a way to secret himself. I'm not entirely sure what happens after this, but I know that Kenrick accidentally helps Antanas complete the opening of Aro's prison and must ultimately find a way to imprison her again. All right. Very good. Excellent pitch, my friend. I would expect nothing less from somebody who's been a fan of the round table as long as you have, dude. Well done. Before we dive into this, what are you hoping to get out of the next eh, 45 minutes or so of, of brainstorming goodness? Um, I'm kind of just hoping to figure out the major kinks and smooth them out. and then... Oh, major kinks. <laughs> you got everybody's attention. Oh on yeah, that. of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, just like figure out um, the main character arc, and okay. just like, yeah. Very cool. All right, I think we can make that happen. I definitely think we can make that happen. But we can't make it happen yet because really we need to cover our ass first. So, Lauren, <laughs> would would you be so kind as to cover our ass? Absolutely. <laughs> Gilberto, you are about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Marguerite might be complete bullshit. This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside, okay? All right. 
Awesome. That's good. We're covered. We are covered. Well done. Thank you, Lauren. All right. Let's dive into this. Uh, uh, we typically start with a quick once around the table uh, just to give first impressions and to ask any questions of clarification. And we always start with our guest host. So, Marguerite Reed, please start us off. What are your first impressions of Hiberto's uh, story idea? And do you have any questions of clarification that need to be brought out before we proceed? Well, I'm really intrigued by a human society where they would have to deal with such things as uh, demons and the undead. Yeah. Uh, my, my first impression was, wow, how would that work? How would that change society and, and the culture and, and economics? Mm-hmm. It also seems to me that there are a lot of great opportunities for big drama scenes. Yes. I, I think this could be, I think this could be big. Yeah, I, I, it definitely falls into the scope of an epic setting. I think it Absolutely. sure does. Absolutely, and Gert. and I love the the Gilberto. You have this character's paradigm already set with the belief in following the letters to the rule. You know that's going to get bashed about as the poor thing yeah. <laughs> is on his quest. <laughs> Yep, yep, and we can explore some of the ways that does get bashed uh, uh, along the way as we explore. Awesome. Any any questions at all? Things that didn't make sense to you? Not yet. Not yet. Good answer. Good answer, because inevitably they come up. They always yeah. come up. Awesome. Well, then I'll turn it over to Lauren. Lauren, what are your first impressions of Hiberto's story, and what questions do you have? Well, similar to Marguerite, I really liked the idea of it being uh, a sort of a normal human world and then not and twisted then not, with the, yes. and then not <laughs> yeah uh twisted with the having them having to deal with demons and vampires and all sorts of fun stuff like that so i i really liked the setting and i love the idea of just having those little slight steampunk elements in there um that make it seem a lot more sinister so that oh. that made me happy um <laughs> Very good. Awesome. Very cool. Then I will dive in with mine. And and I, I will echo what's said here. I like the world building that you set up here, Hibato. I, I have some questions. Um, demons and undead and necromancers. Uh, necromancers, and again, this is this is my anal compulsive uh, uh, world builder coming out. And we won't spend a lot of time here, I promise. But necromancers traditionally are dealing with the undead. Uh, uh, where do demons figure into all of this? Because demons and undead are two different uh, archetypes, I guess, of villain. And I'm curious what your what your take is on why both of those in this world. Well, um, all right. So there's the undead, and they're kind of like rats. They're like the pests. And I was thinking that necromancers got their powers from a demon who started teaching them how to control the undead. Okay. And then the necromancers figured out a way to control the demons as well, using kind of the same teaching. So basically, the demons are the 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 portal, the the gateway to the power of the undead. They create the undead for for whatever reason, uh, uh, yeah. and and then the necromancers aligning themselves with demons get control over the undead. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, what do the demons want? I was thinking it's all individual, and they kind of just want to escape the underworld. And they all, each demon kind of does it its own way. And and um, Earth is the pl- this this planet this place is where they escape to. This is this is the prize. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, because they kind of use human life force to get through. Which sure. Is- Sure. Demon mark. Absolutely. Magical hand wave him. Absolutely works. I love it. <laughs> yeah. um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but with the with the hierarchy of bad guys, the undead are below the demons. The yes. undead are sort of uh, happy meals or workforce <laughs> or what have you for the demons. Yeah, that's what it's okay. kind of like. Awesome. Yes, that's a, that's a so, good distinction. The necromancers would be more trying to be in league with demons than they would be in league with undead because mm-hmm. the demons have the power. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, and the undead are kind of the power, it sounds like, in the world. The, the expressed manifestation of that power and, and necromancers are kind of horning in on or, or parsing some of the demons' power to leverage that aspect, that manifestation of the power. Yep, that sounds right. 
Cool. Um, I really like the notion of the, the kingdoms and the provinces, where the kingdoms have adopted one way of dealing with this environment and the provinces have adopted the other. The kingdoms, you know, demon hunters, and it sounds, you know, very noble. You know, I can see demon knights and this whole subculture of, of what that embodies in that culture. And then the provinces have taken a more... Mm, what's the word, uh, uh, grassroots approach to dealing with the issue of, of trying to co-opt and subvert the power of the demons uh, uh, to keep their people alive. And, and one thing that I would like to see more of that I didn't hear in the story pitch, Hiberto, is mm-hmm. more interaction between the kingdoms, the politics, and the leadership of these two worlds, uh, these two two cultures uh, uh, more actively engaged in the story. Uh, that, that's just one observation I wanted to make. I had another question. Uh, Esburn, you describe as another demon hunter, but he's selfish and self-serving. Why does Kenrick hang out with him? Why does uh, Kenrick accept him? Esburn kind of begs to go along with Kenrick because he wants to redeem himself for having deserted another group of demon hunters. So he's not really selfish and self-serving. He's more cowardly. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Okay, that's an important distinction because it sounded like, you know, Esbern was a candidate for antagonist or someone who could turn down the road. And I'm going to put a pin in that and say maybe we can discuss that later. Um, And the other cool thing that jumped out at me was the notion of the demon marked. Uh, uh, The demons come into this world by marking a human being as their ultimate portal. That Mm -hmm. made me stand up and take notice. And, you know, that concept, that idea, first of all, it, create, it creates for the character who's marked an incredible motivation to, holy crap, either either set your affairs right because you're going to be dead soon uh, uh, or find a way to get around that. And, and that part, and I, I will leave this, of course, to the group to discuss, that aspect, I think, is really kind of key. Uh, to the story that's being told because it talks, uh, it speaks to... Can you imagine what it would do to someone's family? Yes, exactly, to your family and friends. And and if it's it's something you can't hide or it's very difficult to hide, then in both cultures, you know, what does it mean to be demon-marked? And honestly, you know, for me, that pushes Melina up for me as as a character of interest, and we can just explore that later. Um, one other question, and this this kind of speaks to the whole inciting incident. Why is Elena trying to lure Kenrick back to Antonas when Antonas already has everything he needs? Uh, are you talking about Nerissa? Well, yeah, he has Nerissa. He has a live demon hunter. He has what he needs. So why involve, why is Elena trying to bring back Kenrick and along the way, all these other badasses uh, that could eventually possibly mess with his ultimate plan? Uh, the problem is Nerissa is barely alive. So they actually need her. Like what's keeping her alive, as soon as they stop it from keeping her alive, we'll just die. Well, she'll just die. She's kind of like in a coma. Why keep her alive at all then? If she's no use to them, why not kill her and, and carry out the plan anyway? Because she's bait. She's bait. Yeah. I was thinking um, Elena would have a way to prove that she was alive to Kenrick. So he would go. Okay. I and, and I I, out how. I'll just say, you know, from in, it, that, that seems like an overcomplication. Um, right. uh, it, you know, because honestly, Elena could come and say, Hey, no, Nerissa's alive. And if Kenrick, you know, if, if Nerissa is Kenrick's master, then Kenrick isn't going to need a lot of proof. Uh, uh, especially if Elena is, you know, very compelling in her argument. She doesn't need proof and she doesn't need to be her, her name is bait. Uh, uh, okay. so, but, and, and again, I will leave that to the group. It could, there could be value to keeping Nerissa alive in some way, shape or form. Uh, uh, and we can explore that later. Um, blah, 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 blah. And the other aspect is Tabora. Uh, uh, why is Tabora, if she has doubts about Antonas's intentions and plans, why is she going along with him? What is the hook that he has in her? Uh, I think part of it's like a loyalty to the person who taught her. And then he's also kind of offering her some sort of rewards. Nice. Nice. And I think, yeah. That sets up a beautiful parallel between Kenrick and Tabora. uh, uh, And we can explore the power of mentors over their students and what those people who have taught us so much mean to us and what our duty is to them. That's awesome. I like that. I like that a lot. Okay. 
Uh, that's all I had as far as questions and observations, I think. Let me double check. Oh, right. One last thing. Um, you said there's a steampunk vibe to this, but I didn't hear any steampunk in the story itself. Why is steampunk here? That might be one of the darlings that I just kept uh, from, <laughs> from when I first came up with the idea. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, clearly yeah. you dig steampunk. And, and uh, you know, between Lauren, Marguerite, and myself, we might be able to find a way to make it more steampunky uh, as we move forward. So um, let's let's go ahead and dive into the brainstorm itself. Uh, uh, and Marguerite, where do you want to start with this? What, what do you think needs to be shorn up? Uh, uh, what 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 is currently your barrier to entry to just right now picking up this story and consuming it utterly uh first of all yes there is the question of steampunk if they have magic uh why why do they need the technology of steampunk right well and it could be that you know the uh uh, the provinces use the magic and the kingdoms use the steampunk because they eschew and and deny the magic i like that yeah developed as as an as a reaction uh, uh an antithesis to that vibe Right. Uh, Highlighting the difference between cultures. Also, I'm wondering in in the whole land of the necromancers and their and their setting, who how are they getting fed? Where do they live? What are the nuts and bolts of their survival? Yeah, a little a little world building uh, 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 foundation might not be a bad idea. Hiberto, do you have any any ideas of how these people feed and and where their food and water comes from? So in my head, it's like a cabal of necromancers kind of carves out a province where they protect the people in it from the undead or demons who try to encroach upon it. And that kind of becomes a little bubble where they can go on about their daily life. But who would sign on for such a thing? Uh, <laughs> That's a good um, question. People who really but hate the, the kingdom or have some problem with how the kingdom was run. Political yeah, dissenters. There's, there's that whole problem or issue of rewards again. Well, maybe that's like the initiation into the the necromantic cabals is you must serve for a year or two in the fields and and stave mm-hmm. off the undead so that our people may feed. And after your you know two years of service, you come into the 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 college and we start teaching you the real power. But I think only a few people would go for that. Yeah, really. I mean, is this a capitalist economy? Is this a socialist economy? Are the economies different in the kingdom and in the provinces? There's, there's just sorry. There's just different well, factors which would make it more believable. And we can go ahead yeah. and suggest uh, uh, some possibilities here. I can see, I can see in the provinces it being very much a a dictatorship uh, uh, or or an oligarchy led by the high, you know, necromancers. Uh, Antonas, in fact, is probably the leader. Uh, mm-hmm. of the of the provinces uh, and and you know rules them with an iron fist so the citizenry of the provinces uh, uh, for whatever reason fall under his dominion they're 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 little more than serfs uh, uh, to his nobility of of necromancers yeah and I was thinking that like what ends up happening is the demon hunters and necromancers I kind of don't want them to be actually that different so that People won't choose the demon hunters because they're good, or the necromancers because they're bad. They just—it's like a different method of a, achieving the same thing. Well, I don't. Hmm. No, okay. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. I can imagine that some of the demon hunters might get uh, perhaps seduced by the dark side, as it were, sure. and some of the necromancers are uh, try to really keep on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And once again, that goes—that goes back to. Um, Kenrick's belief in the adherence to the straight and narrow will make me great. You've got to wonder if he's ever torn between being a demon hunter or being a necromancer. Yeah, that's an intri- that yeah, that's an intriguing conflict that you could set up, especially if we find a reason. You know, maybe Kenrick has a friend or a loved one. Maybe, ooh, maybe there was a demon hunter who did who was his best friend. Or, or bondmate or, or partner or whatever, and and went over to the dark side. Enter Alina. Oh, <laughs> dude, yes. Uh-huh. Yes, Alina was a demon hunter. That's brilliant. And she went over to the dark side. 
And now, now it's not just somebody saying, I know Nerissa's alive. Now it's his old partner. And, and it's and that actually might help out because if Nerissa was Kenrick's um, master, could she not have also begun teaching Alina as well? I like that. I and then that would that would bring into play Esburn. Was Esburn tied up in that somehow as well? Mm-hmm. Right. Or or maybe Esburn is the friend. Uh, maybe maybe Esburn because I'm I'm getting confused in terms. No no no. You're right, Elena. Yeah, but yeah, and Esburn would be tied, it would be linked to that, and, and that creates this wonderful connect interconnectivity between the key characters uh, uh, that also generates a lot of fabulous tension, especially later on when Camillo comes into the yep. scene and the romance starts to blossom a little bit. Well, and, and with Melina, um, I, I was thinking she might be actually really scared of the fact that Alina has been allowed to join the group because she's demon-marked, which means she's the ultimate portal for a demon. And here you've got Alina, who is a necromancer. Yes. And so it seems like they might have a pretty cool conflict going on there. And, you know, you, you might have Melina being the voice of dissent on having, on, on trusting Alina. But Kenrick has that feeling of, well, but I know this person, or I thought I knew this person. Yeah. And she's come back to tell me that the person we both cared about is in trouble. So, who do I believe? Yeah. Right. Because some, someone who who is an adherent to the rules, to the rule book, is also going to believe to a certain extent that other people do too. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That'll inform their worldview and they'll give yep. the benefit of the doubt. I like that. And I also like the idea that you kind of touched on there, Lauren, the idea that necromancers can, if, if they can lay their hands on a demon marked, that it would be almost like an imprinting when the demon comes into the world. If there's a necromancer there when they come in, they can get like, you know, more of their power or be, you mm-hmm. know, bind the demon more effectively. So these demon marked are incredibly valuable oh, to the necromancer. That's an awesome scene. Because <laughs> Melina yeah. and Alina, I'm guessing, are both girls and they have similar sounding names. Um, but Which is a danger, a hazard. Yeah. Yeah, we call a flag have, on that. Um, but, you know, there are only a, a couple of ladies in this group, so I can totally see scenes where the, the gentlemen have left them to do their lady things in private. And um, Melina does not want to be left alone with this girl because if she touches her, well, she's, she's, she's stuck between a vampire and a necromancer. <laughs> she's really unhappy about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say? Again, that brings up the issue of fate. Uh-huh. With Melina is seen as bait and then we have Nerissa as bait and I I just want to interject that I'm so happy that it was not a romantic partner that Kenrick is on his way to save yes (laughs) affirmed definitely definitely speaking of romantic partners though I'm trying to figure out where Carmilla fits into this like what role Carmilla plays besides love interest Hiberto um I think that he might also know Elena from past travels and we'll try to convince Kenrick to listen to her. Okay. And um, I think that they will ultimately find out that Tabora, or one of Tabora's cabals, cabal members, killed uh, Carmilla's sister. Ah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And by that time, perhaps Elena's loyalties might be compromised after traveling with these people for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that... That, that, that smacks of a coincidental alignment of intents. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, there's this whole gap between everyone setting out to free Nerissa and actually getting there. Uh, uh, maybe at some point there can be some sort of, of bottleneck or conflict that, you know, Carmillo is perpetrating. Uh, uh, I was just going to say that Carmillo wants revenge for the sister's death. And doesn't necessarily care about saving Nerissa, at least right. in the beginning. So there, there might be some some nice romantic conflict, <laughs> as well as like a confluence of the of the romantic subplot and the overarching the plot. Um, yeah, I have um, a question. So we have we have the undead who are just tools for the demons. Where do vampires stand in the hierarchy of undead? 
They're like right above undead, or right above the rest of the undead, and right below demons. Okay. Do they technically qualify as undead, or are they in their own sort of category? I was thinking they technically qualified as undead. Like a necromancer could find a way to control one of them. But so Carmillo probably isn't too happy about traveling with Elena either. So Carmillo yeah. and Melina are sitting here like, mm, we don't know, dude. Sure, which will drive Elena and Kenrick together that much more intimately because uh-huh. Kenrick is going to be the, the balancing factor and the defender of this, this ragtag group of misfits. I'm, I'm having a problem with the label of undead. Um, and, and just because it's, it's kind of right up there with elves, in, in, in my book, uh, there is a lot of baggage that comes in when you invoke the term undead. All the D&Ders are going to be thinking in terms of hit die zombies. monsters. Zombies. Zombi- that was where I went. Yep. Zombies. Uh, there's going to be other people that think zombies. There's going to be other people that think Twilight and and Anne Rice. And I'm wondering, Hiberto, if you wouldn't be better served taking a step back from that label and identifying and defining the 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 power in play here it, and i like the idea that that marguerite teased out that the idea that the demons are the source of this power this corruption and i love that word corruption uh uh and maybe if we start working along the lines of corruption and and not playing into vampires, because a vampire is another label that is going mm-hmm. to, you're going to have to fight against as a writer uh, uh, against people's preconceptions and notions. I think you'd be better served creating this corrupted influence in the world and, and aligning it more closely to the themes of your story. Marguerite, Lauren, what do you think about that? Dave, can I interject here? Please, by all means. Uh, first of all, the fact that you, you latch on the word corruption is highly amusing because, of course, an undead person or creature would not have corrupted in the grave. Mm-hmm. Mm, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, Hilberto, if you can take these terms and reject them to create your own, you will be seen as that much stronger as a writer because mm. you will be putting your own mark on it, so to speak. You'll Agreed. be making this trope your own. By yeah. the same token, don't just make a zombie and call it something else. Right. <laughs> don't call a rabbit a smear. Exactly. That was exactly the thing <laughs> that I was thinking too. But I, I think I like the idea of, of if, if you choose one of these large tropes, I like demons because that carries with it baggage that I think really suits your story. Yes. Um, yes. And everybody. If, but you could create within that a hierarchy or a sort of culture of its own from the demons with their own little, you know, this is a sort of type of demon that is the little crunchy undead type. Or, um, you know, Carmillo is another type of demon that is maybe a person that has been transformed somehow by demonic, or corrupted somehow by demonic energy. And that's sort of where you get your vampire thing. And then, you know, just, just working within one of those tropes and creating your own take on it to kind of suit demons who affect different types of not dead people. Sure. And you could, could could Carmilla technically be someone who used to be demon marked and figured out a way to stop it? That would be cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Melina Melina would be all up in that and just like, how Mm -hmm. did you do it? Oh yeah. Yeah. She would try everything in her power to try and get Carmilla on her side, which would be really irritating for poor Carmelo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I like that a lot. And and let me let me add another thought that occurred to me as you were talking. What if Melina's demon that she is marked for is the 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 creature that Anantes is searching for? This this Aro. Yeah, but Aro's Aro sounds as if she's at least technically on the side of good. Is she Hiberto? What, what's what's your take on that? I, I I see what you're saying, Marguerite, because she she could create potentially create do away with death and banish banish death from the world, and that's a desirable thing, which I think is very cool for for Antonas's motivation. But is she a good thing, Hiberto? Uh, I think she's more neutral. It's uh, she's just kind of too bright. If that makes sense. Okay. Um, right. So she's, she's too much energy, too much power. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't know that abolishing 
death is necessarily a good thing. Yeah, my uh, brain went to resources there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want to ask, um, wouldn't the people of the kingdoms in their fear of the – and I'm just going to go for undead until we have a better term. Sure, sure. Uh, wouldn't they take all kinds of precautions against their their corpses? Ooh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ways ways to Burial. ensure that they're undead, that they're that that they're dead, stay dead, and and don't infest the corruption. Yeah, I love burial rites. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. like one of my favorite things to think about in societies, and that's a great a great idea. I like that. Now, in in the provinces, though, with the necromancers being in power, perhaps there could be like a selection process where. Uh, uh, if you, you know, if either, either if you're really good or really bad uh, in well, that's it. Exactly. If you don't toe the line, you will be marked by the necromancers so that when you die, you will raise up and be part of the corrupted and be part of their power base. And those that toe the line and be nice get to die and stay dead. Well, and that might be an interesting thing to, uh, to, for Melina, because she was born with that demon mark, maybe the idea is that her parents did something that the necromancers didn't like, and instead of marking them, they punished them further by marking oh, her and the fathers. Yeah, 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 very much so. Very much so. I like that. I like oh, that. Oh, and what, is this, what does this do to the notion of suicide? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, holy crap, I mean, that would be the ultimate corruption. If your body doesn't go into consecrated ground or whatever the rituals are, uh, uh, you're basically surrendering, not only are you giving up your life, but you're actually becoming a curse into to the people that you love. Ooh, what if that's what happens with Carmillo, the, the sort of vampire? Mm. If, if, you, if you willingly invite death and you accidentally invite demon instead. She, she, she found out she was demon marked and couldn't bear it and and killed herself and it, and that would that would definitely be a reason why Carmilla wouldn't want to talk about it to Melina sure yeah cuz she actually technically didn't beat it she died and and that power somehow uh, uh has made her a more powerful undead uh but it she she didn't beat it she she I, she's paying the I price i have a question i i may have heard this wrong i initially thought carmilla was yeah. a, it was a guy yeah, Carmelo's yes, a, a guy. Oh, sorry. Carmelo's a guy. Okay, yeah. Okay. That's that's what I was that's what I was thinking. I was like, wait, Carmelo's a dude, right? <laughs> You're right, yeah, right. Yeah. Sorry. I gender I gender flipped inadvertently. My bad. Don't gender flip that. That's a good that's a good we I, liked it. I do too. I absolutely <laughs> like that. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful we thing. We like the like playing with a lot of societal taboos in this book. Absolutely. Yeah. And and my God, fear of death and death rituals are one of the greatest ones out there. And and having having Kenrick and Carmillo uh, uh, enter into a romantic engagement is is beautiful. It's brilliant and a way to to highlight and showcase uh, uh, not only the the reader's conceptions, but also an alternative perspective of it in the context of the world itself. That's that's awesome. Let me throw out one other thing. Uh, Hiberto, there's this section after they get past uh, 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 Nerissa and and the demon where uh, Avant, uh, Antanas uh, needs a, a weapon in a mountain somewhere and Kenrick uh, goes off and inadvertently opens it. Let me, let me offer you this. Save that for book two. <laughs> I really think that with the world building you need to do, because this is such a bizarre fabulous intriguing culture that if you take book one and and really introduce us to it and make it a make a point of you know this this route to nerissa is is circuitous you know maybe we can get to the nerissa hook later in the story maybe that's later in like act two uh as we start dealing initially with melina's issue uh, uh, in some way, I don't know. I'm 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 spitballing yeah, I, here. I kind of like Nerissa being the uh, the inciting incident, and then all this other stuff unfold uh, unfolding as they're on this quest. I can see that. Yeah, I can see and, that. I, I, guess, I think I, that, it, that that was such a strong inciting incident to me that it it would seem like a pity yeah, to relegate that to later. 
Yeah, because you have to get something to get everybody moving. You have to use right. the sheriff in the first paragraph, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and yeah, I there, there needs to be a strong and setting incident. That is an excellent one. I'm just thinking in terms of the actual effort of getting there. Literally, this 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 arc of discovering Nerissa's capture, not death, and then the the journey to get to her and free her, and the revelation of what they find there, and the conflict. Oh, snap. Go what ahead. if he's off? What if he's off to get her? Sorry, yeah, <laughs> I just no. went all raven on you. Get but um, what if he is off to get Nerissa's body? Oh yeah, to save it. Yeah. Well, sure. He would want. He wouldn't want her to end up as yeah, as one of the undead. So initially, he's off to get her body to try to give her the proper burial and follow that le- those 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 laws to the letter to make sure that that doesn't happen to her. And then partway through. And, you know, he, he has this this quest with Esbern and Carmillo and Melina. And then suddenly Alina shows up and throws a wrench in it and says, JK, yep. she's actually alive. Yeah. Yep, that would be conflict and complication. And during the explaining why it's so important for him to get uh, her body would also lead to a lot of world building and yeah. explanation of what's going on. Yes. And, and, and you- I realized in listening to you guys just where the Victorianists could figure in. The Victorians had a huge culture of death, mm. uh, not necessarily celebrating, but acknowledging death, of memorializing it, which, you know, is could be an ex- an excuse for the Victorian-esque setting. Absolutely. To be able to play with that. And that would be a very cool area of research for Huberto to go into is exploring yep. those Victorian death rituals and, and transplanting them into this culture. That's badass. And, yeah, and I can send you some links, Huberto. Oh, right. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, send them to me and, too. <laughs> uh, if, uh, if, you, if you're going with that, you may also want to change the it's, – it's, a, it's a, a wording thing, but it also has a, con, a contextual change. But change the uh, – calling it from calling it kingdoms to calling it an empire. Okay. Oh, yeah. That or might, a commonwealth. Or a commonwealth. And those just some of those verbalizations – will lend toward giving it that more Victorian steampunk feel. And it sounded before like you were going for a dark steampunk feel. So drawing in some of the obsession uh, with the occult that the Victorians had as well might be a a good way of doing that and having some of the salons where they talk about the occult and do tarot reading type things. And seances. And seances and... And you got the Hellfire Club and the and the and the uh, oh the Order of Hermes. I mean, yeah, there was oh, that. Funny. Fasc- I can tell you about the Hellfire Club. <laughs> there could be that whole fascination with the occult, which is at one time very tempting, but also in that culture, anathema, or or, mm-hmm. or or at least a very very dark and and frowned upon pursuit. Sure, you could have the the people who wanted to be edgy running around saying that they deal with necromancers and they do that kind of thing. Right, right, it's and and the, it's romantic. It's speakeasy. Sure, sure, a whole subculture in there. That's awesome. That's very cool. Um, and that um, might be what that might be where uh, Carmilla comes from. Sure, she would be. Uh, uh, he. he would be sorry. <laughs> he would be uh, a, a, a a very alluring character to that culture. Uh, a, yeah. a persona who is in demand for those little dark side salons and so Which on. would probably just piss him off to no end because he's like, look, I was demon marked. I tried to kill myself. I didn't <laughs> want to be this this corrupted thing. I literally did not want to live. Well, and I can see it turning into a very dark impulse. It's like, oh my God, you people, you're so enamored of what I am and what I am is is abhorrent. It's it's aberrant. It's wrong. And and having it be that whole, yes, I'll indulge the ultimate destruction of the world because you people aren't really worth saving. I'll go ahead and indulge you. And then maybe Kenrick can, through the, the, the budding romance that evolves in them, spark some kind of, God, maybe there is something to live for kind of Rehumanizes vibe. it. Re- thank you. Yes, rehumanizes. Melina would have to be a part of that rehumanizing too. Yeah. Yes. How how is he going to convince her that no, I'm not going to do this for you, and this is why? There could be a great scene where he breaks down and tells her just how horrible it's been, right? Which in turn perhaps draws Kenrick to him, right? Or or maybe Kenrick has already been drawn to him, and he doesn't want to dissuade him by telling him the truth, and so he confides in Melina instead, mm. right? Um, I'm wondering, just as an alternative, uh, uh, if the I love the idea of of 
getting Nurse's body being the initial objective. And then act three, scene one, because I'm Shakespeare that way. Um, they <laughs> get to the point where they're supposed to pick up Nurse's body. And there is the big fight. And in that fight, the bad guys get away and it's revealed that Nerissa is alive. And in that fight, Cam- Camillo is one of the antagonists, maybe because they realize that they are moving at cross purposes. So you've got a crisis with Camillo. You've got a change, a shift, an escalation, elevation of the, the stakes because now Nerissa is alive and now we've really got to find her and that'll really drive the energy for the remainder of the book, the urgency of, holy crap, we've got to find her now. So, um, wait a minute. I got lost a little bit. Why is Carmelo now an antagonist? Not an antagonist, but working at cross purposes because, uh, well, yeah, you're right. That doesn't Carmelo's work. Carmelo's out but, for revenge. Yeah, pull. Yeah, we can. We and we can pull oh, okay. that off the okay. table. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, out for revenge as opposed to saving Nerissa, which brings gotcha. them across purposes. Right, right, right. right. Uh, I see now. Okay. So um, there's a question, and that that might be a good motivation for as uh, for Esburn, uh, because mm-hmm. thus. Far Esburn has not done a whole lot, or we haven't touched on yeah. what purpose he serves besides being kind of the cowardly lion of the group. I mean, he is a demon hunter, and he begs to go along to redeem himself. Maybe is he thinking that something happened with the bodies of the people he deserted, and he wants to go maybe help prevent that? Does he redeem uh, himself, or does he die? Or does he turn? Does does yeah. does Tabora, the 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 necromancer who's questioning Antonas's motivations, turn and does uh, uh, and and die and does Esburn turn and embrace the necromancy, the dark side, the dark side, the betrayal. You know, you could you could have a, a you know, we can decide who dies and who lives, but I love the idea of you know having multiple conversions. Uh, and subversions of stated raisons d'etre uh, yes. in in the name of what is right uh, and in terms and, and and what is noble and honorable. We have Alina and Esbern both as these characters that don't really fit with where they started, and Tabora as well as questioning things. So that that makes for a those three might be interesting to explore in their loyalties and their ultimate decisions and what sorts of things might sway them to change sides and how they work up to that. Is this a single perspective or is it multiple POVs? Um, I was thinking of just doing single perspective, but yeah. Okay. I can see that. I can see that. Although God, there are so many intriguing perspectives just in terms of, of viewing the world. And I, I'm not a big advocate of head hopping, uh, but I can see No, I, yeah, you could totally do this from Kendrick. I would, I would go third person. Uh, uh, it has to be third person limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you I could, would say either third person limited or third person, multiple perspectives, but limited within those perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, pick 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 who the, the 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 two or three people who are the keys to this narrative and the gateway into the world it's told in, and and work from that perspective. Yeah, 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 and and explore that, play with that, guys. I'm looking at the clock and and I'm seeing it ticking it's down. You that face again. It is. It's giving me the face. It's giving me that beast look, and it scares the crap out of me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to kind of steer us towards that that final stage. What I'd like to go, do is take one last turn around the table, and and uh, give Huberto some some basic some some final thoughts, some advice, any ideas that you didn't get a chance to share during the brainstorm proper. But but basically fill fill his pockets with literary gold, uh, uh, so so we can send him off, so we can write this story. Marguerite, we'll we'll lead off with you, ma'am. Uh, uh, what what final thoughts do you have for Huberto? Keep the viewpoint to Kemrick. Explore the dicta of keeping to the rule book and let that destroy him before you elevate him and let everyone else react to that because they're, they're all going to be different in their, in their approach to that sort of thinking Uh, and explore the way that a culture of death would change 
a nation. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's potent world building right there. Awesome. Lauren? I would definitely recommend you take a, uh, a look at the at this whole demons, vampires, undead, necromancers terminology and focus on whittling it down to one thing, um, and I would recommend demons, and working from there to create your own structure of, of this demonic idea and the people that work with them and um, just so you don't drag in any of that any more baggage than is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Make this your own, put your own stamp on it. Absolutely. And make it clear. Yeah. Yeah. Before yeah. you, before you clear, clarify it in your own head before you start writing. Right. Right. Good advice. And I've, I've got two quick things. One was an idea that occurred to me, uh, in that act three, scene one scene, when, uh, the bad guy gets away, uh, uh, it, this can be Kenrick's, trial of, of faith at that point if Carmillo is going to try and is going to be in a position to kill Antonas but and it's Antonas's magic that's keeping Nerissa alive then if Carmillo kills the bad guy then Kenrick loses Nerissa and yeah. that's a question with chainsaws right there especially if there's feelings evolving between Carmillo and uh, Kenrick and how Kenrick deals with that and obviously it needs to be you know knocking aside Carmillo thwarting Carmillo's vengeance so that Antonas can get away uh, but also keep Nerissa alive that's that's that crisis point where the the wonderful rigidity that, that Marguerite invoked can get broken uh, uh, and start Kenrick potentially down a very dark road um, the other thought that occurs to me is that you've set up some wonderful mirrors uh, and and contrasts within your world and within your characters. You've got the provinces and you've got the Commonwealth or the Empire. You've got Tabora and you've got uh, uh, Esbern being people who can work either side of the thing. You've got Melina and Carmillo. You've got these wonderful reflections of of theme and emotional arc and yeah. i i encourage you to identify those very clearly be very clear about each of them in your mind before you start writing uh or you know explore be aware of them and then explore them through your writing because sometimes that stuff doesn't come out until afterwards but Set a flag in your awareness and make sure that the narrative that you're telling is in service to all of those wonderful contrasts. Well said. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, and make sure that they are in service to the, to the core of the book and don't distract from it because I think they're delicious. And, and I think that's going to be probably your biggest challenge is to make sure that those various contrasts and narrative threads are woven together into a story. But I have no doubt, Hiberto, that you are up for it, man. This, this has been epic. And, and here's the deal, man. Holy crap, dude. Write this story. That you are charged and commanded to sit down and write this badass story. And and when you do and you put it out in the world, whether it's as a, a PDF on your website or a six-figure deal through one of the big five or however many there are now, uh, you let us know. And when it's out in the world, seeding people's imaginations, we will bring you back, sir, and we will knight you. We will make you a knight of the round table podcast. Are you down with that? Yeah, of course. Of course you are. It's, 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 a, it's an aspiring goal for all writers to do that. <laughs> Very cool. Hiberto, this has been awesome, man. And I know it's never easy to put your baby up for scrutiny. And you've really set a fabulous feast. Obviously, that discussion was awesome uh, uh, and lots of very cool ideas. So thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Great. Yeah, you're welcome. And thanks to all of you for uh, helping out. Oh, oh it yeah. was our treat. Our yeah. Treat. It was. It was a delight. And and Marguerite Reed, once again, I am affirmed in my decision to bring veteran authors on and introduce them into this discussion uh, uh, because your experience, your insights, and your prowess with the writerly arts came out and, and really informed that discussion. Oh, I really you. appreciate it. Very cool. That's kind of you. <laughs> now, nothing but the truth, ma'am. Nothing but the truth. And Lauren Harris, my, my co-host and sister of podcasting, uh, we've done it again, and by God, we will do it again uh, uh, uh -huh. as, as many times as, as time allows. Thank you so much for adding your mojo to the conversation. Hey, it was my pleasure. This was a, a really fun story to workshop, and I'm really enjoying my stencil chair. 
<laughs> yes, yes, we'll get it upholstered and all of that good stuff. We'll put the coffee cup, <laughs> the coffee holder in there, all that goodness. <laughs> and as long as we're doling out the gratitude, dear friends, thank you for tuning in. Without you hitting that play button, we're just four people talking on a Skype line, which is cool and, and can do some cool stuff. But the reason we record these and share them is so that you'll get some mojo from them too. And I'm sure there is some literary gold that you've tucked in your pocket as well. If you're feeling the love and you want to pay it forward, write a review about us up on iTunes or blog about us, share a Facebook post, spread the word. In in the potosphere, there is no greater coin than ears and fingers clicking on the play button. So help us do that and spread the word about the awesomeness of the round table. And... Holy crap, I am now going to light these celebratory cigarettes because I am spent <laughs> from the from the creative froth <laughs> that is the round table. And of course, in seven days, like a phoenix from the ashes, friends, this starts all over again. We bring back another fabulous guest host to pour wisdom into our ears, another courageous guest writer to 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 light the match on this explosion of brainstorming goodness. More round table fabulosity to be had by all and that is of course seven days from now and that is a long time so lauren help us out we need your guidance and advice what can we do between now and seven days from now to make that time fly by well dave we can write oh my goodness yes and by god we should because when this thing drops we're in the middle of nano so I know for a fact, everybody, the fact that people are listening to this episode, now it might be December when they actually get around to hitting the play button. Uh, but for those diehards who actually listen to this episode in the middle of Nano, you totally rock. And yes, go right. You've got 1,667 words to get done today. Get on it. And I will tell you, as I always do to your friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for that hidden Christmas present at the back of the tree. And if you look for that fabulosity, I promise you, you will find it. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.